Hey everyone, and welcome to Spiel Chicago, the podcast exploring feminist work in Chicago theater. My name is Smyra Yan, and this week my guest is scenic designer Ashley Ann Woods. When Ashley and I spoke this past summer, we talked about how she managed being her own boss after going freelance, about working with 20% Theater Company here in Chicago, and about her Better Characters blog, in which she gives recommendations of books with female characters worthy of an audience. Ashley Ann Woods, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before we get into your work, actually, I want to ask, do you remember the first play you ever saw? I don't remember the first play I ever saw, but I do remember uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was in band and we took a band trip to New York and got to go see some shows on Broadway. And I saw Phantom of the Opera and <laughs> that musical for some of its flaws uh, and some of its very like 80s music. Uh, has like a falling chandelier and someone jumps into a lake which they go through the stage and there's just these gorgeous um and at the time i thought impossible sort of artistic elements to it and so that shows the one that i like credit as being the first time that i was like this is amazing people create this uh so that that's sort of my touchstone how do you find yourself in Chicago? Uh, I moved here on a whim. There are a lot of cities in this country that have really great theater, but the touchstones are New York, Chicago, and then LA if you want to do film. And so I was looking at graduation and I had sort of narrowed it down to one of those three. And I really hate LA. Uh, I've visited a couple times and it's just not not my scene and i'd been to new york but i wasn't quite ready to move so far away so i just kind of put my finger on chicago and packed up my stuff and moved here um thinking it would be a temporary first step to somewhere else and i've been here for eight and a half years now so that worked out <laughs> um which is not to say that i wouldn't continue to explore other places but i just kind of landed here and it stuck Chicago's pretty great. Chicago is pretty great. Why set design? Well, you actually do a lot of design, right? I do. Uh, I do primarily set design now. Um, I got into it via set painting, which I did in high school, and some properties design, some backstage crew. And we had this fantastic regional designer who came into our high school and designed our shows and worked with us on them. And I was, um, oh, I have the best parents in the world because I was all set up to go uh, to a different college and get my degree in teaching communication arts and English. And this designer we work with came up to me after our fall show and was like, you know, you have a real talent for this and you can turn this into a career. And I went home and went to my mom. I was like, um, I want to be a theater major and we should look at some new schools for me. Oh so, God. uh, it was, I make spur of the moment decisions apparently, um, in my life, but, I so I went to school for scenic design. Um, I also have a degree in costume design. When I moved to Chicago, I did a lot more costume design, but I just I like creating worlds. Um, so that's kind of what I do on a daily basis now. How do you start a career in in set design? In set design, oh, there's so many different ways to get into it. Um, I showed up in Chicago. I did a lot of costume design early on um, because I found it was an easier way to break into the community, uh, which was 
a good idea on one hand, but then there were a lot of people who were like, oh, Ashley, the costume designer. And I was like, no, Ashley, the scenic designer. Uh, so I think that it's just a lot of getting your foot in the door and trying to uh, force people to get to know you and your name. It's interesting because if you're like a playwright, right, you can write a 10 minute and get it put up somewhere sure, pretty sure. low budget. If you're an actor, you can you can do a reading for free. If mm -hmm. you're a set designer, yeah, like how do you show off your work? Yeah, it's it is a little more difficult because you can't do hypothetical designs. You don't just send renderings out and hope sure. that people like it. Uh, there are there's definitely there's internships, there's apprenticeships. I didn't opt for any of those because I've always needed a steady income. So that was never anything that I could do because uh, I'm terrible at saving money. But <laughs> um, it's, you know, early on in my career, I worked on a lot of shows for very, very little money. And it's one of those things where I, when I talk to younger designers, I want to tell them, no, don't do that because your skills are so specialized and you should never work for less than what you're worth. Uh, but unfortunately, that is the way to get people to know your work. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a bit of a catch-22 for me. Are you completely freelance right now? I am as of a couple weeks ago. I was working uh, in a scene shop, a local scene shop as a scenic painter, which was a semi-full-time job. Um, but I left because the design work's picking up, which is great. And I really enjoy being my own boss. It's, it's exhausting and um, sometimes there's really terrifying moments, but it's a little easier in these art fields to be able to juggle multiple things at once and not have to worry about someone else's outside schedule. How do you stay organized? That's like something that I really struggle with when I have any kind of like multiple projects or when I was freelance. I was like, when do I do work? And when, when am I not working? Yeah. I'm setting my own schedule. When am I not working? My mom always asks me if I ever am not working. And I have <laughs> to reassure her on a weekly basis that I actually take time for myself. Uh, I am a big fan of lists. I keep a paper calendar still. I know everybody has sort of switched to their phone calendar, but it's too easy for me to put that down and ignore it. Um, so I, I have a paper calendar, so I have to write everything down and and hopefully that commits it to memory. Um, and then I have, it's like calendar on the left side and massive to-do list on the right side. And I just jump back and forth between the two. Um, and sometimes I'm very successful and sometimes I'm very much not, <laughs> which happens because I think as an artist, it's, uh, it's in all of our tendencies to overbook ourselves because it's exciting when people want you to work for them and you don't wanna say no to any opportunity or any job. Uh, but the art of saying no is something that I'm really trying to focus on, uh, especially as I go back into freelancing full time. Everybody that I've talked to that's at this sort of inflection point in their career, like they've just gone freelance or they're like the work is becoming really steady. Like that's the thing they keep saying. They keep mm -hmm. coming back to how important it is to be able to say no and know that that's okay. Like there will be work in the future. Yeah. And when I was when I was painting sort of semi full time, uh, I, it was easier because I just mentally knew that I could like tech and open one show a month. And that was all I could reasonably handle along with 40 hours a week painting. Now, like I'm resetting the rules for myself. So I don't have that hard and fast number to stick by. Um, so yeah. How's it going so far? It's going okay. I'm, uh, I've probably taken on one project too many this week. 
but it's not unmanageable. So, uh, getting, getting to Friday at this point for me is a, is like a, a finish line and then things should calm down considerably. I think I, I honestly think I just panicked a little bit because I was quitting my job. And so I took everything. Right. Uh, because July is going to be great once I get there. Right. Well, thanks so much for making time in your busy, of busy course. week. Of <laughs> course. Really this is actually it. a really nice break to step away from the drawings and the computer and come and just oh, good. talk you to someone. You can come by anytime. We can record great. conversations about whatever great. you want. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your work. You are uh, the Associate Artistic Director at 20% Theater, is that correct? That is correct. Um, 20% Theater is a theater company. It's a feminist theater company. Uh, it was started in 2002. I have not been with the company that long. I think I've been there since 2010. Um, the company is devoted towards producing works that are written by and directed by women with a distinctly uh, female identifying voice. Uh, and I help sort of run and manage how we, how we make a small storefront theater happen. 20% for how long it has been around is actually still very small. Our operating budget is tiny. Um, we're in a, we're still moving. We don't have our own space. So it takes, um, sort of a Herculean effort sometimes. Uh, I also help read scripts right now. We're in the middle of trying to finalize our 15th season. And I also, my, I don't know exactly what an associate artistic director is supposed to be. Um, so my big focus is on being a resource for the other members in our company and also the other artists that we work through throughout the community. So if someone comes to me and says like, Hey, I want to do this talk back about, gender politics and theater, like we find a space and we find a night and we circulate the word. And so in a lot of ways, that's kind of my favorite part of the job is just being able to provide a platform for other people to do their work. Cool. Has being a, a company member there influenced the work that you do or the way that you think about theater? It does. Uh, I actually have found myself um, working more and more with just women directors. As a designer, I'm often hired by uh, female directors. I also, there are some shows that I have said no to just because I don't appreciate the content in them, some of the relationships and some of the the character roles, um, which I don't think I would have done even three years ago. But the more that I have this like upfront look at how how truly difficult it is for a, a woman to get a step ahead in theater. Um, I just, I care a lot more about that in my own personal career growth as well. When you make those decisions, do you say, I'm sorry, I just like the content of this play is not something that I want to work with? Or do you just say, oh, I don't have time? Or do you kind of like ease out? I wish I was brave enough <laughs> to say that I always just confront the issue. Uh, it really depends on how well I know the person who's offering me the job. Uh, if it's a theater company that I haven't worked with before, and I don't want to totally close the door on working with them again, I try to be more polite about it and usually give a very vague I'm unavailable for this production. Uh, if it's companies or people that I've worked with before, um, even one other time so that they know my work and they know me and they know it's not coming from a malicious place, but just from a hopefully informed place, I will be more open about that. 
Yeah. Is it ever hard to say no to that work? It is. It's hard to say no to any work. Right. <laughs> yeah. Especially if I think it means they won't ever ask me again, uh, which I think is sort of a constant dread that a lot of designers live in is if they say no once, you'll just be like crossed off the list and no one will ever come back. That being said, um, if people don't already know I'm a feminist, as soon as they meet me, they'll learn pretty quickly. So I don't think in any way I'm surprising anyone when I just say like this show has these problematic issues. I hope you address them in your production. Yeah. I had never thought about that as like professional expression of feminism that you would just say like, you know what? I can't do this project. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was, <laughs> there've been a couple shows that have come really, really close and I've had conversations with the director then and, and which is great before you sign on to any project. Ideally, you have a conversation with the director who's directing it to make sure you have, you have a good match. And that's an awesome opportunity to bring up my concerns because sometimes the director's like, oh, yeah, that's an issue and we're going to address it in this way. I want to put this angle on it. I want to make sure this character is depicted in this way. Uh, so that's so, yeah, so that that's helpful. Um, there's actually I do have a show coming up, but it opens in July and I think it closes in August. It's um, Neil Simon wrote They're Playing Our Song. It's a musical. Uh, it's got a little bit of a cult following. It's about this relationship between um, a composer and a lyricist. And and similarly, and this is a perfect example, because in the original Broadway version, like the story is really sort of his story. He's closed off emotionally and she is compassionate and warm and giving um, and part of it is that she has this uh, relationship she's trying to get out of and she can't quite leave it. Um, and so the original Broadway version and all of the reviews, they all were just like, oh, she's so flighty. She should just make a choice already. Why is she always talking? Blah, blah, blah. And the director and I sat down and we're like, man, like, no, she is giving of herself to two different people at once. One person she's actually trying to leave but knows like is very concerned about their well-being like this is the sign of a, a good person um and you know in in the design itself she's a lyricist and and she talks about how she's just writing all of the time and so the director and i both were like well you know uh she writes these lyrics and he takes them and puts them into song but like for every song that they collaborate on she's probably got like four notebooks of lyrics that haven't been touched right and she you know you get to be that way by study and by reading a lot and and we're possibly imposing but i don't think so uh, a specific feminist slant on her so you know when we get to her apartment in the show like it's very important that there are books and not just like novels but books about music theory and feminist literature of the time period and and just to show that she's well read and and well studied and that she's an intelligent because that's not otherwise depicted in the show but it's clearly a part of the person that she is so i don't know i probably impose my feminism maybe more than the authors originally intended i don't but that I sounds so much so. more interesting like if that was a complaint yeah. before Right. If she was so two-dimensional, now she's you're imposing anything. Now, yeah. I don't think so either. <laughs> yeah. I think only twice I can think of a show that I just really couldn't stomach the idea of having to... Some of it is when... Some of it's just the sheer fact that, like, you're going to read this play so many times, be in so many meetings and discussions about it. You're going to watch numerous run-throughs and all of tech and all of previews and sometimes if it's just like, I can't sit and watch this play over and over 
that's a good deciding moment. Yeah. Um, you're also a company member at Collabor Action, is that correct? I am. Uh, I'm you... a company member everywhere. <laughs> I was going to say, this is why you seem very busy. Yes. <laughs> very cool. Um, is that mostly set design? Uh, I do set design with them. I do event design with them. Collabor Action is, you're going to notice a pattern here. Collabor Action is a theater company that's dedicated to doing shows about critical social issues. Uh, this year, uh, this past year, they actually did a show that was called Gender Breakdown, which was about some of the issues uh, women face in theater. I actually wasn't on the design staff for that show, but um, it's just one of the many reasons that I love that company and why I got more involved than just designing for them often. Uh, so I do scenic design, I do some event design, um, but to be a company member is just, I mean, a lot of times it means volunteering your time. Uh, so for me, it's important to choose companies that I feel uh, that our values align. I think most people probably feel that way about the companies they choose. Uh, and so for me, these the, the theater companies that are dedicated towards having a specific voice and not just, you know, voicing their opinions, but actually getting out there and doing something are the ones I feel closest to. So, And Straw Dog. And Straw Dog, which I am recently a company member with as of a month ago. Cool. Maybe two months now. Oh, that's very exciting. Yeah. I don't think I've ever asked anyone this, and I think I know the answer, but like, what is, what is involved in being a company member at a, at, in a theater? Sure. Uh, so company, every company has some regular form of meetings. It's, I love company meetings. Sometimes they're three hours long, and so that's a little exhausting, mm -hmm. but uh, it's, it's artists coming together and talking about a lot of times why they're doing the art that they're doing. So there's conversations about how, you know, past shows, upcoming shows, how things are running, um, how we can get the message out to the community, how we can work with the community, why we're doing the art we're doing and how we can best get it out to the public. So there's that. Uh, beyond that, there's also volunteer opportunities to uh, help around the space. Um, when you have a chance, Straw Dog, I painted their front bar for them uh, after I became a company member. So if you go into the space, that was me. I painted That's that. That's your handiwork. Yep. Um, and uh, there, you know, you you help boost the the word on social media. Uh, it's there's a lot of advocacy for it. Um, you can go and talk about it with other people and upcoming shows and help publicize what's going on. And then, you know, the other sort of added benefit is just a lot of networking. Uh, there's a, you know, you, you've got this sort of home in this community of artists that uh, sort of become your support system and you can build further relationships and they'll hopefully help recommend you to their projects and you can recommend them to uh, your projects. And so it, like building tiny little theater families. There's also something very distinct about the storefront theater scene in Chicago in general in many, many ways. But uh, bigger regional theaters, like there's a staff. Um, and in the bigger theaters in Chicago, there's also a staff. And in the smaller theaters in Chicago, there's usually a smaller staff. Uh, but I think that so many of the companies in this city were formed by like-minded artists coming together and saying hey we want to do theater that looks like this so like let's you know get together and you're going to do this job and you're going to do this job and you're going to do this job and we're just going to make this happen uh and so I, I think that that sort of company ensemble idea is perhaps a little more um 
feet on the ground in Chicago, whereas regionally and certainly in bigger theaters, there's usually companies and ensembles, but they're a little more often just in name only artists you like to work with and whatnot. What do you think are, in your experience, signs of a good company or a strong ensemble? There's definitely a trust factor and a respect level that I think that you can feel as soon as you walk into a room. Um, there's definitely the people who have the the real passion to be there. And on some level, because of how much work you're doing as a volunteer, uh, you have to have that passion. But I think that what is the best indicator of companies that are um, going to be thriving are the companies that can view it also as a business. Uh, it's an important thing to keep in mind. As a, as a company member, I'm a company member with these three theaters, but as a designer, I work with theaters all throughout the city. And I oftentimes like to, you know, take the, like the one or two things that this theater is doing really great. And then I, you know, bring it back and like, guys, like I observe this and this works. And I think if we change it this way, it could work for us too. Uh, so, you know, I'm a big fan of learning from all the people I work with on how to be doing this better. Cause I also, there's not one correct way to run a theater company. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if there's one way that works better than other ways. And there are certainly places that are have been more successful that can be role models. But also if that's not working for you, it's not working for you. So Right. It depends on the kind of work you want to do and what you want that work to do for the community. Yes. Right. Like if you are really interested in providing art for people who can't afford to see the theater that you love like you then want to provide that theater for people at no cost which is Absolutely. a very different model than say you know a subscription model i just live by the idea that all of the theaters in this city could be working together better i think that there's sort of this um part of being an art that has supposedly been dying for centuries is right. that i think everyone's always trying to make sure that they're not at the bottom of the barrel and and you know we see theater companies who close down across the city uh probably more regularly than we'd like but i i don't ever see it as a competition i don't understand uh the mentality that we can't just share audiences that we can't be helping each other out and this might also just be a life philosophy of mine but i I'm a big fan of just and I, the idea of, of a handful of theaters coming together and like just understanding their similarities and then finding ways to support each other. A co-op. Yeah. We need a theater, a storefront theater co-op. We sure do. Because there's the League, which is a great resource, mm -hmm. but an organization that serves, you know, Steppenwolf isn't necessarily going to be able to do the, provide the same benefits as it is to like people putting together a short-term DIY theater storefront. Absolutely. A yeah. co-op. This is this will be my mission. Right. <laughs> this is the start of the theater storefront theater co-op right here. Yeah. People are going to talk about us in their theater history classes. <laughs> <laughs> That's exciting. I hope they get it right. Yeah. some design questions in general because you're the first designer that I've had on. Actually, oh. I had a costume designer, but the first set designer that I've had on. Sure. One, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like it's sort of a male-dominated field. 
It is. It's, uh, I think the most recent statistics I've seen is that it's 23% women, um, which is not great. It's mostly a male-dominated field. Um, lighting as well. Lighting as well, but lighting actually has more women. Really? Uh, yeah. I don't know why that surprises me. I don't, you know, it surprises me as well uh, until I think that some of what happens in scenic design is that, especially in a smaller environment, scenic designers early on in their careers are often expected to also build their designs. And I think carpentry is something that is so traditionally male dominated that it's sort of has brought scenic design over to that side as well that's the only justification i can think of <laughs> but there are uh there's a higher percentage of female lighting designers sound design is the absolute lowest i think it's just like 11 percent of sound designers are i women. thought you were going to tell me like there are 11 women who do sound there design. are 11 <laughs> maybe in this city there might be possibly um and costume design definitely has more women than uh than the other design fields yeah is there a lot of crossover between costume and set design? Uh, well, depends where you're working. I mean, there's there's a there's a whole career title called sonographer, which is scenic design and costume design. And in the film industry, you've got a production designer who's actually overseeing sort of all of the physical artistic elements of the of the movie, and then they have an art director who's focused primarily on the set and a costume designer, but those people both work under them. So there's definitely a harmony in those fields, um, possibly because they're the big physical elements on stage. Um, so yeah. I wondered if there were a lot of people who started in design more generally, a lot of women specifically, and then started to get more work as costumers because that was what either was expected or, and so that just, you know, begot more work. That is entirely possible um, because I can speak from my own personal experience that when I moved to this city, it was actually pretty easy to find work as a costume designer. And I had to work a lot harder to find the work as a scenic designer. And a lot of that work actually started out in the suburbs first. And then once I had a more developed portfolio, it got a little bit easier. Um, so that, that definitely is one theory. I think that a large part of the costume design majority of women uh, or that those statistics are at least better is because um, the garment industry has been sort of not even the people who design clothing, but the people who make clothing. Um, and then you think about, you know, quilting crafts and knitting crafts and stitching, and those all are just considered sort of women's work. Um, so that there, there's definitely some very, very like, old gender stereotypes that just lend right into that. And similarly, I think it's a thing where, um, I don't know about you, but when I was in high school, uh, I think in seventh or in junior high. So in seventh grade, we took home ec and like metal shop, but in eighth grade, you had to choose because there were more electives and it was a choice, but it was, I mean, I went for home ec because it was certainly like just what I thought I was supposed to do, uh, which is only ironic because I hate cooking. I still don't. And I sew, but mostly because of my career and not because it's something I particularly enjoy. I probably would have loved metal shop. And it just was one of those things where like women go do this and men go do that. And I think that that same idea falls into costume design um, because 
again, in these smaller theaters, when you're a costume designer, you're also making all of the costumes. And so, you know, male costume designers who might be interested in the design aspect of things, but have never touched a sewing machine might more easily be turned away. Whereas women are taught from high school that this is how you sew things. Yeah. This is a thing you might be interested in because you're a girl. Yeah. Yeah, man, that makes me think of uh, this problem of um, women being excluded from computers and programming, primarily because when it became a field that you could study in higher education, right, there was this whole generation of young boys who had been given, um, you know, computers mm -hmm. and video games and these tools to become interested and also to have a base knowledge so that yep. women who decided that they wanted to, you know, be engineers or coders or whatever would get to basic classes and find that they were way behind yeah and then some of them i'm sure you know they think oh i just don't have an aptitude it actually it starts so much uh younger than that too and i'm pretty sure i've read numerous studies where women are actually more mathematically inclined in most statistically so not in most cases but statistically but i just read and this is terrible because I have no source because I read it uh, and I passed along to a friend of mine who now has a one-year-old daughter and we're making sure that she's got all the opportunities that she could possibly have available to her. But um, it was this study that showed that as early as six years old, um, girls were already pulling away from STEM fields because just because that's like how, how it's set up that, you know, little boys aspire to be these things because we tell them that that's what they aspire to be and and little girls aspire to be these things because that's what we tell them they're supposed to be and yeah it was a it was bizarre to read it because like as young as five when they would ask children what do you want to be when you grow up it was anything and everything and then somewhere in that like six and seven range it switched and all of a sudden there were these camps that people fell into so it's oh, such a bummer <laughs> Let's talk about your better characters blog. Okay. This is what sold me. I like, I, you know, do research on people and there's so many like really interesting, awesome women doing interesting, awesome sure. work. But I saw this and I was like, yes. Yeah. So how long have you been doing this? Yes. Okay. The better characters blog was started, um, in January of 2016, because in December of 2016, I was, uh, while I paint scenery, I listen to audiobooks. Um, so I was listening to this audiobook, and I really love Christmas a lot, and I like Christmas themed stories around Christmas time. So I picked up this audiobook called um, Dashing Through the Snow. The male protagonist's name is Dash. So that's like, mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. the level of romantic comedy we're dealing with. So I was not like a lifetime movie level. Yeah, Christmas yeah. And I think story. they actually made a lifetime movie of it because. We, my roommate and I just the other night were watching, oh no, I don't even remember. We were watching a movie and, and we were looking up an actress in the movie on IMDb and my roommate was like, oh, she's in this movie called Dashing Through the Snow. And I was like, oh my God, is the character's <laughs> name Ashley? And she's like, yeah. I was like, oh no, they took this terrible book and they made it into a movie, which is a hundred percent exactly what this book was written for. <laughs> so um, the female character's name is Ashley and it's a very sort of contrived premise where these two characters, there's like one rental car in the airport. They're both headed in the same direction. They're going to spend like 10 and a half hours on snowy roads together. Um, again, I was not expecting a lot out of this book. It was just supposed to be fun. And it 
is yeah. kind of fun. Um, but as I was listening to it, I was realizing and I was getting really angry and possibly because the protagonist's name is Ashley. Um, but their their dialogue, uh, he's he's like emotionally closed off and heartbroken. And she's your typical like manic pixie dream girl who's going to just like warm his cold dead heart. And so she's lively and bubbly and talkative and compassionate and caring. And he's um, surly, but then also like as they start to warm up to each other, his sort of technique for flirting is that like, oh, why don't you just shut up sometime with like a wink and a smile because it's like cute to put people down. Um, and it, and I, I, I don't want to be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure it was written by a woman. Cause I think that that was the other reason I was so upset about it that, that there, that for all of this, like care that she is putting out in the world, um, he's responding in what is, you know, like microaggressive, abusive language, but it's meant to be charming. Cutesy. And I, you know, and, and so I went on Facebook, uh, hopped up on my Facebook soapbox, which I try to only do three to four times a year and went on this rant about it. And so a friend of mine responded and she was talking about, um, some of the statistics of romance novels and like the audience that, consumes them and like the percentage and the money that those uh those um companies make those publishing companies and she and I were talking back and forth and we got around to that like well maybe if like people just knew that there were better books out there for them um they we could change the the sort of uh demographics and we could get people to buy better stories about women and she on my Facebook was just like, okay, Ashley, my challenge for you in 2016 is to like tell women of the world that there's better books out there for them. And, uh, for, and it was, it was a joke. Like it, we were just having fun and I thought about it for my entire Christmas vacation. And so in the new year, I decided why not? Because I read a lot of books and I just naturally tend to fall towards books um, about women like me or women I admire. And so I just decided to start this blog and I would just blog about books I read where I thought that the female character was worthy of an audience. Um, I, there's, I guess I never like set out to be a book reviewer, so I don't know how much like critical thinking is in these reviews. It's more so meant to be a resource for women or men who are sick of reading the exact same sort of gender stereotypical female characters and might be looking for um, a different outlet. So that's the Better Characters blog. Ashley Enwoods, thank you so much for talking thank with me you. today. It's been super fun. Yeah. Thanks again to Ashley for joining me on the podcast. Ashley is now working with Birmingham Children's Theater in Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about her work, we'll have a link to her site on the show page. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or rants, you can email spielchicago at gmail.com. That's S-P-I-E-L Chicago. You can also find us on Twitter at spielchicago, Facebook, and now Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. One last quick plug, if you're in Chicago this week, you should absolutely check out Climate Change Theater Action going on at Pride Arts Center November 14th through 16th. It features virtual reality, dance, puppetry, live performance, and a call to activism. It's presented in part by Iris Solat and Denise Serna, who have both been on the podcast before. It's pay what you can, and it's got artists from all over the world, and I am super excited to hear what they've got to say. 
That's November 14th through 16th at Pride Arts Center starting at 6.30 p.m. That's all for now. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you at the theater.